Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Barry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. It's Q&A Friday on The Future Belongs to Creators. <laughs> is that appropriately energetic? Oh, I think so. <laughs> but you know what? We'll leave it up to the audience. If uh, Judges, if you could get your scores in right now, the scale is 1 to 10. All right. All right. Today's Q&A Friday. Mm-hmm. First one is from Tanner Reclitus, I think. Tanner said, could you talk about what we need to do on the tax and legal side to get our business set up? Also, when should we do these things in our journey? First disclaimer, I am not a lawyer. Nathan is not a lawyer. I am not a tax accountant. I have studied accounting, but you should not take accounting advice from me as the end all be all. We will give anecdotal experience from ConvertKit and our own creator journeys. You should consult professionals to get advice specific to your situation. Given that disclaimer, what are your thoughts, Nathan? Oh man. So there's a trade-off here that I think every creator faces, and that is option A, do it by the book and front load a whole bunch of effort uh, for something that you don't know if it's going to, eventually that you don't know if it's going to work yet. Option B, which is what nearly everyone takes and I'm not making recommendations, but it is the path that I took. (laughs) And that is... Set up just enough and keep iterating as you go as you get more and more success. So for example, for ConvertKit, though, for the first two years, we were a sole proprietorship. That is the nice thing about doing business in the United States. You can just start doing business. It's not tax advantage or legal, you know, or anything like that. But there's, you generally, for online ventures, there's no licenses that you have to get or something like that. So if you just be like, hi, I'm Nathan, I'm doing business, then they're like, cool, you're a sole proprietor, you fit into these buckets and it works like this. There's not really a downside to starting there as you figure out if this is going to work. You know, a week later, you could form the LLC, or in my case, two years later. You do need to do that. You do need to form that LLC, set that up. When you make that jump, that's the time that you need uh, an operating agreement, all of that. I think we paid about $2,500 when we were getting going um, to form the LLC, set everything up correctly, have like our terms and conditions for the software product, all of that. Find an attorney who works with startups and don't go like, I was walking through the airport and there was a sign for Perkins Cooey and so I went with them. Don't do that because they'll be ridiculously expensive and you want someone who has like a pre-made package focused on startups. Yeah, what what would you add, Barrett? Yeah, not much. My my basic thing would be like, of the things to worry about, I would worry way more about growing your audience and making money. It's super easy to file your taxes as just as a sole proprietorship and to register your money that way. And so once you know, you've got like what would be considered a going concern, meaning you're going to be in business for a while, you know what your business model is, you know, it's making money. There are some benefits to changing structure. I would just make sure you file, file your taxes appropriately every year. And you don't, don't put yourself in a position where you have liability in the future. If you were ever to be audited and you end up having to pay back taxes, like that's the major thing to avoid. Just make sure you file your taxes and pay taxes appropriately. And otherwise I would put that off to later, especially as you're getting started. Yep. Mason's got a great point in there of keep your business money in a separate account from personal to keep it clean. If you have a relationship with a bank, they'll usually give you another account, whether a checking or savings account, basically for free. 
And so that's such a good way to go. And then, you know, at, at the end of the month, if you're on top of things or at the end of the year, if you're not on top of things, it's so much easier to just be like reading through one statement and not trying to keep track of these things. So even if you just, you know, uh, so a separate business account, separate business credit card, and it'll make your life way easier. And the problem you're trying to solve for there is just having one place to go to look for your business revenue and your business expenses. It makes the accounting part way easier. Whereas if you're coming through all of your personal expenses to try and find which ones were business, it's just a lot harder. You know, there's like thousands of transactions every year that you have on your personal cards, I would imagine. And this will help lessen the load. Next pre-existing question is from Jay Carteri, Cartier. Uh, Nathan, I will let you answer this one. Will we ever, 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 ever get a mobile app version of ConvertKit? Oh, man. So, yes, we will. All right. So, I'm going to answer it in a philosophical way. As you build your business and product, you have to decide what you're going to be good at. And you have to make deliberate decisions to expand the footprint. So if you think about a feature set, topics for your audience, all of that, like what is the footprint? And where are you going deeper or building um, more and more there versus where are you going wider and spreading yourself then? So for example, on a mobile app, we know in that case, it's not just build a mobile app and move on. It's we need it the way we do it as a squad of engineers. So we need two or three engineers plus a designer, like focused maybe not 100%, but greater than 50% on just a mobile app, mobile experience uh, forever. And that's a commitment that we've been prioritizing other things over, like releasing commerce, like getting helping creators get started really quickly with uh, forms and landing pages. So those are always the trade-offs. It's on our list. We have all the designs for it. We've Our designers have actually put together quite a bit of it, and we just keep keep deciding, okay, we're going to have to wait on it. So there's always trade-offs in business. Indeed. It will completely change the app too. I mean, there's only, like, if you think about the way you use ConvertKit on a desktop browser, it's it's not going to be the same thing in an app. You can't, you can't have the kind of layout of automations and sequences and some of the other things on a mobile device the way you do on the desktop. And so you may be able to achieve some of it, but there may not be all of the functionality when we come out with an app either, because it may just not make sense in a mobile form to be able to build right. all this stuff. Maintaining it, looking at stats, um, seeing your uh, purchase activity, things like that, that might be possible. Maybe sending broadcasts would be possible. Um, but as you, you start looking at things like sequences and automations, there's just a lot of considerations that go into that, even once we make the call to build the app. And so it's not that we don't hear you. We hear you. Like, of course, a lot of people have asked for it. I, I mean, even in using my own account, like I, I could see value in having a mobile app for things like looking at my revenue through ConvertKit Commerce, looking at my new email subscribers and unsubscribes. Um, maybe there's a future where like you could see subscriber responses inside of ConvertKit or something like that. I could see that fitting in a mobile application. So like, yeah, we hear you. We'll do it eventually. Um, and really, we're just trying to make sure that we prioritize the things that balance our goals of keeping a small, deliberate team size and the goals of creators. And like, that's the balance we're maintaining. Our next question is from Emily. Thoughts on transitioning a free product, for example, a free PDF or ebook used as a lead magnet, to paid. 
Right, I'll let mm-hmm. you take this one first. Okay, I, I always love this advice that Seth Godin gives, which is um, if you want to spread an idea, make it free. If you want to make money, make it paid. And so my first question for you on this kind of thing, if you have a lead magnet and it's doing a good job of building your audience, spreading a philosophy you have, kind of sharing who you are, uh, do you need to make it paid? That would be my first thing, because maybe it's actually doing its job and you should make a different pot, product that's paid. But assuming you've already gone through um, all of that, uh, I would think about what is the next level deeper you could go on the same topic to create a paid version? Um and so like at, at Fizzle, the last company I worked at, we had a lead magnet that was the top 10 mistakes online business builders make when getting started. Really popular, super useful because it just kind of like highlights some of the, the pitfalls you can avoid when you're getting going. Well, if I were going to make a paid version of that, I would teach people how to solve for those problems rather than just calling out the problems and how they tend to happen. I would say, here's what to do instead with step-by-step instructions or something like that. And so I would just think about what's the version that's a level deeper or, or broader that's going to provide more value than what you've been giving away for free so that you can differentiate between the two. Yeah, that makes sense. And Emily said to clarify, you wouldn't replace the free opt-in. You just create a new free option, start charging for the older one. Oh, so I see. I think that'd be, we'd ha- want to dive in more on whatever the specific uh, circumstances are. But yeah, it's, it's all about how do you add more value? How do you go deeper in that, if you did intro level as free, then what's the 201 or 301 level on that? Often switching media types can help. There's a mm. perceived value in, you know, for whatever reason. A lot of people value blog posts at this level, you know, maybe newsletters slightly higher. I don't know, there's some exclusivity and then like video and then courses and like a published book. It depends on the individual, but if you look at that, it can often be better to say like, Maybe the free version was an ebook and the paid version is the full video course Yeah, where you switch to a, a medium that has a higher perceived value. Yeah. And in something like a video course, you know, maybe you add in things like worksheets and exercises. One of the things that I found when I was trying to turn my first written product into a course was I was almost just repeating what I had on paper, but on video and that can work, but I think there it's, it's a different medium for a reason, you know? And so thinking about the new ways you can teach either maybe with a display behind you or with slides on the screen with exercises and worksheets and downloads and things like that. And so, yeah, changing that format can really increase the perceived value to your point, Nathan. I like that. All right. We have one more from Twitter. Um, Aaron Parn says, do you offer your employees a raise before they need to ask it? Oh, That is a good one. No, we actually make them beg for every raise that they get. Um, and I had to throw that in just because then Barrett can make fun of me for how I pronounce a certain word. Beg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I beg for an egg on my bagel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, Barrett, you've spent a lot of time on how we do performance management, salaries, and everything else, right? Because this is... The question points to an outcome that we all really want to avoid. So why don't you touch on that as to our approach? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really, it's, it's just uh, demotivating to have to ask for a raise, you know, when you feel like you're deserving of it or to ask for a promotion too. And so I'll talk about it in two ways. One is about um, how we do salaries and one is about how we do promotions because I actually think of them as quite different. Salaries are standardized at ConvertKit. There are defined titles. 
there are defined levels of each title within the organization, and each level has an assigned salary. The levels have clear definitions of responsibilities and skill sets that come along with them so that we can kind of place you on the spectrum of where you are within your role. So our roles don't have them, so they would be bad examples, but let's take like a marketing designer. So a marketing designer would have levels one, two, three, four, five, six, starting at entry level, going all the way up to like master designer, setting the strategy and trends in the industry or something like that. And each one has a pay tier. And so when you come in, we're very clear with you about that. We know we're hiring from a level maybe three to five is what we're open to. The salaries are from this number to this number. That is on our job listings. You know it coming in. And then we will specifically tell you where we're placing you at what level and therefore why you got the offer you got. Then every year in October, I think, is when new data comes out through the uh, organization called Radford that we use for the standardized salary data for national software companies or city-based software companies, depending on what we're, uh, which data set we're using. Uh, that comes out every year. Uh, we adjust up. We only go up if salaries have changed for the same levels. And so every year, same time, people get a raise based on the new salary levels from the data set. And then, so that's that. And then the other way that you can get a raise is through getting promoted, right? So going from one level to the next level or one role to another role and um, I would say we are getting better at being proactive about that as managers. There are times where people advocate for themselves for a promotion. And I think that's an okay balance. You know, we should be developing talent and being very intentional about looking at who in the organization is talented enough, not talented enough, is showing a realization of the potential we see in them through their work and has been doing it for a period of time so that we know we should be helping them progress. And the other way is they're seeing something maybe that their manager's not, or they think they're performing at a level that their manager's not seeing. And that can sometimes lead to really good intentional conversations about what they need to do to get that promotion. And so typically what we want to see is for six months in a row, two quarters, someone performing at that next level in their role, and then we promote them there. So we want to see them make that commitment first, and then we acknowledge it with the promotion and a raise. So that's kind of how we handle it. The basics, not super relevant for creators, but maybe if you, if you start hiring people, it could be helpful. Yeah, I think so. There's another question. What are some top qualities or experience that you look for in a prospective employee? Um, I'll take this one really quick. We've actually been doing something of starting to look at just a really simple matrix of like ambition or drive on the X axis and then um, skill, ability to execute that kind of thing on the Y axis and sort of graphing that. So you're, you know, your ideal candidate has very high skill and has a ton of drive and ambition. And, you know, I'm sure, or I hope everyone has had a chance to work with someone like that where you're just like, wow, they're basically unstoppable. And that's, that's incredible. Usually what you end up with is somewhere in there, right? Where you're trying to either help them level up because they have a ton of drive, but they don't yet have the skill. And so that's where, you know, coaching programs and development or internships or mentoring programs really play a big role. Or sometimes, you know, you're, you're really trying to find someone who has a ton of skill and make sure that, you know, you can unlock that drive towards that, you know, the project, the company goal, all of that. We do a lot of that kind of thing in um, talking a lot about our mission and vision, why we're building what we're building, making sure that we're hiring people who have that values alignment. So when we are looking at hiring someone, we're looking for people who share our values, but don't necessarily share our backgrounds, beliefs, something like that, right? So when we're talking about culture fit, 
if, if that ever comes up, that would be like based on values. And then we'd be looking at culture contribution from the perspective of how are your different experiences coming in? How can you help us better represent and understand the creator audience that we serve um, and so on from there? So those are some of that at a high level. Yep. Love it. Only thing I'd add there is just looking at people's trajectory, you know. Um, there's a book called Radical Candor that we like as an organization. We're reading in book club again for the second time. And Kim Scott, the author, shares a framework of growth trajectory on one axis and results or performance on the other. And so you can think of someone's like capacity and the, the trajectory they're on in terms of growing their skills, growing their abilities, and then what they can actually achieve day to day or what they are showing to achieve in terms of results day to day. And, you know, we're definitely looking at that, that growth trajectory too. How is someone growing over time? You know, what is like their arrow in, in terms of growth? And we want to see people who are ideally, you know, ready to grow and they want to continue to expand their abilities and help us grow as a company. Yep. That's good. Mason asks, I'm looking at doing the Highlands Ability Battery, which Barry, you've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. What was the main value for you? Has Nathan done it? I've not done it. I'll call that part out first. And then Barrett, you want to talk about. So a couple of things I loved about it. One is it's not a personality test. It's about, um, so there's all of these little micro tests that they do in there. And it's things that measure things like pattern matching, uh, tonal recognition, for example, like, can you differentiate between pitches, things like word creation and idea generation for measuring creativity and spontaneous thought. So there's all of these like defined abilities that are based on research that they're giving you tests to evaluate. And then they're reflecting back to you how your natural abilities might interplay with what you do every day at work. So like one thing for me that it called out is the value that I place on interacting with like the real world, physical stuff in the world. And so it says, uh, working purely online or purely digitally might be somewhat frustrating to you. And it's like, well, yeah, there are some days where it's frustrating to me. And sometimes I'll switch my like Zoom meetings to walking meetings so that I at least get some like kinetic movement along the way. Or another thing it called out for me is that if I don't have concrete work product, that I might get frustrated by that. And while that like might highlight my leadership abilities by being able to manage other people, not having anything I produce myself could end up being really challenging for me in a job. And so maintaining a balance, even if I'm leading people where I also have projects that I'm working on that end up in completion. So it just helped me get to know like really what some of the things that have frustrated me at work in the past were rooted in and why uh, I have those frustrations and then how to correct for them or how to optimize my role to achieve some of those things over time. Right. Yeah. I think that's really good. We're going to do a couple of rapid fire questions. Great. I was going to say, Nathan is going camping this weekend and we're going to wrap this thing up here in the next five or 10 minutes so he can get going with his family. <laughs> yep. Totally. So Emily asks, uh, what books are on your nightstand right now? Ooh, that could even be our resource of the day. Uh, if we wanted I can't say the name of the book. I'm reading Everything is Effed by Mark Manson. Um, it's on my nightstand. It's the audiobook, but that's fun. I've enjoyed, been enjoying that. I don't know why it's taken me so long to read it because um, I really liked his first book. But um, yeah, what about you, Barrett? So I have a nightstand in my room and then I have my like side table in my office. So I'll answer the question as asked. I have Closer to the Ground by Dylan Tomine. It's from Patagonia Publishing. It's a story about him using foraging, fishing, like growing and finding food in the wild to build relationships with his kids. Um, really loved that one. Uh, the wisdom of the Enneagram. 
I usually just go back and read little pieces of that to reflect on my own personality and others' personalities in my lives. And then lastly, Origin by Dan Brown, uh, which is another Robert Langdon book in the um, Da Vinci Code series. Good stuff. Emily, again, is asking, have you ever had some big injustice happen to your business? Betrayal, unfair lawsuit, stealing, et cetera. How did you personally work through it? Emily, I just want to say that this, along with the product positioning question, makes me think that uh, you're, you're going through some stuff right now. So <laughs> <laughs> we're pulling for you. If you ever need any help, like offline or want to talk to any business problems, uh, just shoot either of us an email. We're here for you. I mean, we definitely had some people uh, misuse some like access they had at the company at one point. Yes. That was relatively minor and we were able to correct for it, but it could have become a big problem. They were like stealing information basically, and then using it in a side business of theirs. Wasn't a big fan of that for obvious reasons. And <laughs> yeah, that uh, was very upsetting, especially because it was someone that, you know, really trusted and respected and and you want there to be a way to work through it, but it's like you realize that it's so far beyond what's acceptable that it's like, okay, we, this relationship is over, you know, yeah. uh, this work relationship. It's one of those things where it's like, from a personal side, I can let go of it and move on. But from a work side, it's like, I actually don't know if I will ever trust you again. Mm-hmm. Yep. I had in my first business, because I didn't get to revenue fast enough, I ended up raising some money and we were trying to make a pivot in kind of how we were approaching our product. And, um, our first investor was, was not someone I would accept money from again. I don't think loved him to death, just like personally in my life, but, uh, was not a good business partner. And when we described the pivot we were planning to make, he basically made a counter pitch and said like completely irrelevant counter pitch about the fact that we should be essentially going into old school media, like paper newsletters was his counter pitch to what we were planning to do. And we ended up at a stalemate that definitely influenced me feeling like it was time to move on from that first business. And so, yeah, if you ever raise money for a business, you know, make sure that your values aligned and vision aligned with the people who are giving you the money because they can really make your life difficult um, if you're not. So luckily we've been pretty lucky all, all things considered. Yeah. I thought of one from a past business. So the very first company that I started was a web design agency called Sparrowhawk Creative Studios. And I started it with three other guys. I was, I must have just turned 18, something like that. You know, like very beginning of college. We rented an office. You know, it was a one room little office, but we're all sitting there like designing websites for people. That business ultimately failed. We all went our separate ways, but two of the guys decided to build a business buying computer parts and then like building, you know, gaming computers for people like that and selling the the completed computer. What I didn't realize is because they had a delay in getting their LLC set up and all of that in order to get a contract or to get a, like a, a vendor agreement with Newegg so they could have net 30 terms and net 60 terms. They used the company name from the first one that we had shut down. And I didn't find out about it until my dad ran a bookstore that I had used as the like registered agent. You always have to do that when filing for an LLC. I had used his address as that. And so I learned what happened with this other business when the sheriff showed up to serve paperwork. And the sheriff was like, assuming it was my dad's business or something. It had nothing to, you know, there's no connection. My dad's like, no, there's, you know, we're just a registered agent. 
But basically, they'd run up twenty or twenty five thousand dollars in debt with Newegg, like on you know net sixty terms for computer parts, and they'd done it all under the previous business that we like hadn't properly closed down and everything. Um, so I was pretty nervous about that one. It ended in a lawsuit that I basically wrote a letter and was like, "That's not me. It's them. They didn't have the rest of it." And I think the whole thing just died out. I think whoever was litigating it was just like there's no money here. And they just dropped the whole thing. Um, but that was definitely the most money I've ever been sued for. So, and it was not, it didn't have anything to do with me. Yeah. 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 Shenanigans. We, we do have a friend who is in a multi-year long legal battle over the name of his company. That would be an interesting story to tell sometime, but I'd want to ask his permission before telling it. So, um, okay. Creator of the day. Oh man. Okay. My creator is Jenny Bailiff. She has a YouTube channel called the science mom, which she's got so many great things on here. It's just, I've been exploring it more. It's so good. She has a series called quarantine and tons of views on them. It's just fantastic, but she's teaching physics and science and all of that. She's got an email list that she has on ConvertKit. We're actually featuring her in our This Week in Commerce series on ConvertKit. And her product is a paper physics camp. So two days of exploring paper folding experiments, teaching physics and all of that. She sells it for $10. And uh, she made over $4,000 from it already. And it's just so cool to see creators do that. Of one, providing great value to everyone who's, you know, <laughs> a surprise or force homeschooling their kids. And then, you know, providing this extra learning and everything, building a great audience, and then bringing it through into earning an income from it. Love it. My creators of the day is the duo, The Shires. They performed on Creator Sessions today. If you didn't catch that right before this on the ConvertKit YouTube channel, Creator Sessions are a mostly weekly series. We do highlighting incredible creative artists uh, from within the creator community. A lot of times it's musicians, but we also bring on, uh, we've brought on Cook, uh, a couple of photographers. Um, we primarily do music, but we really just want to highlight creative art that really requires a visual medium, especially to tell the story well. Um, they tend to be sessions where the artists share a little bit about their process and play music or and share their art. And uh, I found it just to be a really inspiring place to hear other relatively well-known in most cases, artists talk about the process that led to the art that we all love. Um, so I hope you'll check it out, but regardless of whether you check out creator sessions, the Shires are great. I had not heard of them before they joined us. Um, no offense to them. That's my own music taste, but I love them and I'm looking forward to listening to more of their music. Yeah, they're really good. All right. That is it for today. I'm going camping. Barrett's going to have a great weekend as well without me. And, uh, we'll see you all on Monday. That was your tent. <laughs> that was a tent. I actually rented a trailer for this one. So, and uh, can you make a box? It's like, <laughs> there you go. All right, let that be the last thing you guys see <laughs> for today, and we'll see you later. Bye, y'all. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. To start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>